and welcome to the Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, I'm joined by a regular Spectator contributor and a favourite of the magazine, Claire Mully, who's talking about the brilliantly named Eglantine Jeb, who is the subject of her first book, which is just now being reissued. Because for those of you who don't know Eglantine Jeb, I'm sure you will do, she was the founder of Save the Children, which celebrates its, what is it, Claire? Centenary. It's centenary this year. And it's the... Also, the anniversary, there's another anniversary, isn't it's there? It's the 30th anniversary of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Ah, yes, which so, is also... Which evolved directly from her pioneering statement of children's human rights. Excellent. Eglantine's work. So, she's described as the white flame, or more informally, you call her an inspirational spinster in a brown cardigan. Um, <laughs> who was this brown cardigan figure? I mean, Anne, how did you first come across her? I came across it because I used to work at Save the Children quite a few years ago now. And it amazed me. Really. She was this remarkable woman who not only set up Save the Children, but then the International Save the Children Alliance. She then, five years later, went on to write her revolutionary statement of children's human rights. And she she really, I mean, these changed the way the whole world both regards and treats children, and yet she's almost completely forgotten. And at Save the Children, there wasn't much evidence of her there. There was a meeting room name and a, a tiny bit on the website, which was quite new then. And I... Decide, I went on maternity leave, thereby showing far less commitment to save the children than she, because she never had children of her own and dedicated her life to the cause. And I just thought, I'll root around in the archives and see what I can pull up, being quite a nosy person. And I found all these extraordinary leaflets that she'd printed off herself in 1919 at the end of the First World War, which she'd annotated, and loads of very scratchy little cartoons she drew. She had a very dry sense of humour. She was quite wicked, really. And I just thought she was this most remarkable character, and why don't we know her? She speaks very immediately to us today, and yet she's all but forgotten, so... And so where did she come from? What was her what was her sort of background? So she was a very well-to-do Edwardian lady, really, and she was expected to um, grow up and meet a, a nice, preferably rich young man and have a, a family. And she did once say that to succeed in life, we must give life. But she didn't mean to give life in that traditional way. In fact, she didn't like children very much. She famously, oh, I love her saying that she called them the little wretches. And she said, the dreadful idea of closer acquaintance never entered my mind. So she, she gave life from a strategic distance instead. But she, she was able to do that partly because she was from fairly wealthy family. She had independent means. She was very smart. She was well-educated. She went to Oxford. Wasn't that a graduate, of course, because she was a woman back in the day. Uh, so she was born in 1876. And yet defied convention and, and broke the law and insisted on living life on her own terms. And but she sort of started off, didn't she, be, you know, the, the, she feels a slot into that kind of well-to-do Edwardian ladies doing good works and her siblings were doing the same thing. You know, she, yeah. she was a teacher, wasn't she? And she was involved. She, she was a teacher, although of... that was sort of considered fairly a suspect, really. When she came out of Oxford with her history she wasn't allowed to qualify she was expected to go on and sort of be lady bountiful if she wanted to do good perhaps she could educate a few nieces and nephews and show people my moral example but that wasn't her she went to Stockwell Teacher Training College and insisted on doing it correctly you know getting a qualification and she was the only one like her there there's photographs and you can tell her a mile off because she's the only one with enough material for her fashionable puffy sleeves and everyone else I mean her initial letters home were quite patronizing she found it quite a cultural shock she said oh all the others they have accents and wear aprons because they were working class girls trying to become teachers and she was trying alongside them and I should imagine they made better teachers than her perhaps and she she didn't like teaching when she finally got a job in a sort of inner city underfunded school she said 
that she would rather be at the dentist having a teeth pulled than giving another RE lesson. And, and she, she realised that she wasn't cut out for teaching and nor did she want to spend her life around little children either, which she found tiring and exhausting. But she realised that she wanted to have a life of real value and purpose and put back into society. And the, I mean, the war was a kind of pivot for her, but or at least the pre, before the war yes. was the sort of thing. I mean, she went to Macedonia, and that seems to be a kind of important yes, period in her time. What, what did that do for her, her trip to Macedonia? Yeah, it changed her perspective in many ways. So Eglantine had done some early social work in Cambridge, and she'd actually written the first social report on a city outside London based on Booth's report, which became the model for social investigations in 11 other cities around the country but she was looking for something more and her brother-in-law a liberal MP called Charlie Buxton had set up something called the Macedonian Relief Fund so he wanted someone to go out and put in place the structures to enable the distribution of aid in the conflict in the Balkans area which would later go on to become the First World War and and it was incredibly brave of her as well I mean here was a woman who a few years earlier wasn't allowed to cross a college quad without a male companion or an escort and now gets on a train and goes into the heart of a European war zone and she she does set in place the systems to distribute aid and she insists it's all done on the basis of need not of gender or nationality or faith or any other considerations and while she's there she actually gets taken aside by one of the British ministers out there and he asks her to investigate reports of the disappearance of the mayors of 15 local villages and she manages to slip away from her Serbian host the Serbian at that point in that area were the sort of uh, dominant party and she managed to slip away and and The Brits were kind of pro-Serb weren't they? She was encountering a lot of propaganda from... She was encountering an awful lot and she was heavily chaperoned by a military guard as well. But she managed to slip away and dash between Catholic Albanian safe houses and scribble down this list of the names of disappeared men. And and she still had a few weeks out there, so she folded it up and she sewed it inside her clothes and she later talked about feeling the names of murdered men pressing against her heart. But she eventually smuggled these names out and handed them over to her political contacts. But in a way, that's that's an aside. I mean, what you asked how it changed her perspective and I think it was two things. Firstly, she decided that uh, relief work is vitally important, but also we need to work to stop such situations occurring. We need to do preventative work or long-term development work, and she really changed the way we look at international development. And secondly, she'd always been focused on the UK before, and now this opened up a, a sort of international perspective to her. And one of the things she said at that time is, the only international language in the world is a child's cry. There's a kind of pivot, isn't there, in her Outlook, I mean, I, I think somebody put, she was this wonderfully warlike as a child and she loved she playing with toy soldiers and thinking about yes, war. And yeah. She used to sneak into the boys' bedroom and steal their lead soldiers, melt them down over the fire in the nursery, turn them into bullets and go sneakily out hunting. <laughs> I, I thought that was great when I was first researching that. Now I've got three kids, I think that's very, very bad. But yeah, <laughs> yeah so she was very warrior-like. And although she changed her perspective on conflict, she never lost that personal fight. No, and during the, during the war... You know, she's sort of having been a very, I mean, it's sort of a pivot to being in the direction of being a pacifist. And also, you know, her sort of Toryism kind of shifted into kind of quite a liberal. She did. Agenda, didn't she? Yeah. Can you talk a bit about her involvement in the war with the 
The Cambridge Magazine. What? Yeah, by the Ogden, wonderful Ogden, who had the sort of pioneer electric cigarette that he invented himself, you know, 100 years before anyone else. Eglinton also sort of invented a proto-post-it note as well in her many <laughs> paper works. Yes, yeah, so she was involved in the translation of the foreign papers. She and her sister, Dorothy Buxton, who co-founded Save the Children with her, managed to get through their political contacts, they're very well connected, a special dispensation to get foreign press, both neutral and also enemy papers, when there was a ban on these. And then she would translate, with a whole team of volunteers, extracts from the papers. And they were published in the Cambridge magazine, which was based in Cambridge, but had a subscriber list that was absolutely massive and went to a lot of political people, military people, all sorts of influencers, George Bernard Shaw, cultural figures and so on. And what they were trying to do was to counterbalance what people like Beatrice Webb was saying, the lack of understanding for motivations on both sides of the conflict and to try to help set up the climate for an earlier peace negotiations, an earlier end to the war and uh, and an end to the, the killings and death. And her personal life is, I mean, obviously slightly outside the, the remit of her, her professional work, but it... It's part of her life. It is part of her life and it's kind was. of fascinating. I mean... You know, she is a sort of spinster in a brown cardigan, well, but she wasn't entirely we... without without love. I mean, there's the Marcus Dimsdale was yeah. this guy. Yeah, Tom was a very passionate woman. I mean, a spinster can be passionate. So yes, her she fell in love twice really, and the first one was it took me a long time to find his name. Eventually, I tracked him down. His name was Marcus Dimsdale, and he was a brilliant Cambridge don, and he. He was also a great horseman, and she was she'd been riding since she was little around Shropshire, and they lived in Cambridge, um, not together. I can imagine her scattering hairpins around Cambridgeshire, and she she wrote social novels as well, but to sort of highlight the ills of Edwardian society to her readers. But she knew no one was going to read them. So were the novels any good? The poetry wasn't great, from what you quoted. I think wasn't great is fair. Anyhow, she um. She sugarcoated them in Tales of Romance, and I have enjoyed reading a few of them. And in her main one, she describes the, her two main characters, and it's based on her relationship with Marcus, and it's all about the thundering horse beneath her and, and raising her eyes to the man who galloped over hill ahead of her and all this. She was quite struck with him. Um, and unfortunately, when the expected proposal eventually came, it went to one of her friends who said yes, and she was absolutely devastated. And then she threw herself into good social work and other things, and eventually in Cambridge she met a woman called Margaret Keynes, who was the daughter of Florence Ada Keynes, one of the first female mayors in this country, Mayor of Cambridge, and uh, she was the younger sister of John Maynard Keynes, the economist who was a, a friend of Eglantine's and an early supporter of Save the Children and so on. And she and Margaret fell passionately in love with each other. Um, I went up to the Lith, which is and Margaret her... was very young when they first encountered each other, wasn't she? She was a sort of protégé rather than a... Well, she was a, yeah, she was a young friend, but they worked alongside each other for some years and their relationship lasted over many years and they were... You know, a lot of it was done by letter, actually, which was handy for me. Having found none of the letters from Marcus, annoyingly, because Eckington obviously destroyed them all when it went wrong, um, there were hundreds of gossipy letters talking about the suffragettes at the post box and all sorts of things between these women. And when I eventually put them in chronological order, it turned out it was this really lovely romance, and they had fallen for each other. And I, I wondered about the nature of this relationship, but they're very upfront about it. You know, they share a bed when possible, they talk about their cuddles and kisses, and, and they wanted to marry. They said, Margaret said she'd give up the idea of children if they could marry and they swapped they couldn't swap rings but they swapped necklaces which they could wear underneath their blouses so hidden but eventually it wasn't to be I think as you put it she's she was thrown over for 
a, a professor of frog anatomy. <laughs> frog muscle mechanics, yes. That's kind of depressing. Margaret couldn't give up the idea of having children and eventually married this very brilliant physicist called A.V. Hill, who actually won the Nobel Prize for physics. And he was also quite fertile, good for her, because they had four children, the eldest of whom was called Eglantine. Although when she heard the backstory, she changed her name to Polly, sadly. There you go. <laughs> um, but yes, she was, it, must, it was certainly very hard for her. And Eglantine went to the wedding and wrote some letters that were fairly distressed afterwards and became quite unwell again. She had this very cyclical health anyhow, and this sort of merged in with that, and she became... Well, she had a sort of thyroid thing. I mean, you, you hint that she might have been actually bipolar. Do you think... Yes, well, I mean, it's a bit anachronistic to use that term for someone then when this wasn't even a, a category. You know, that a it's impossible. Upside down, yes. Well, more than that, I, I, I wanted to get it right, so I found her medical notes in the Royal College of Surgeons archive and took them to the head of the British Thyroid Association, Association who's really nice. He brought his own biscuits when I met him. And, um, and he talked them through, and he said, from his uh, professional's perspective, he believes that uh, quite often a thyroid condition can go along with other things, and he felt that she was probably manic depressive to some degree or bipolar and this was exacerbated by her thyroid condition but she was certainly pleased to to have a medical cause for these you know she had long periods when she was exhausted and struggled to get up but then she also had uh, huge times of great energy and activity and, and imagination and creativity so it was quite cyclical like that and it was tied into this thyroid condition and do you think i mean the sort of Maybe sexist sort of vulgar Freudian interpretation oh goes, dear. look, she's thwarted in love. She doesn't really like children. She's taking out her energies on good works and philanthropy and, you know, the children of the world rather than children of her own. Do you think there's, do you think that's a sort of anachronistic yes. projection? You think? Yes, I think perhaps that says more about you than her. It probably does, yes. Um, I, I, I think when women don't have children and achieve in other areas, people tend to say, oh, perhaps they're using that well, energy elsewhere. I was... And I think here is a woman who actualised her life, who found great satisfaction and achieved a huge amount that we should be discussing. Um, and instead we're talking about she didn't have children. Was that a cause? I don't <laughs> think it's necessarily relevant. All right. Well, let's move on to what she did do. Because the pivotal thing comes at after the war, when there's still the blockade of Germany is still happening, and she gets involved in you know, the, the efforts to lift that. Yes. And what, what she do? What does she do? Okay. What she do? Let's Brilliant. fast forward to 1990. Okay, so one of the things I found in the Save Children archive was this extraordinary leaflet that she had had printed up herself. It's called, there's a title at the top, it says A Starving Baby, but it's a photograph of actually a two-year-old, a little two-year-old. I know you've got kids, as have I, and two-year-olds don't look like this. This baby looks like a baby, can't stand it. It's had arrested development because it's not had enough nutrients to develop itself correctly for its age. And Eggentine was appalled to learn how many children there were like this in Austrian Germany in the peace and in the first week after the peace 800 children died in Germany alone partly as a result of the continued economic blockade that the then Liberal government had put in place as a means of pushing through better reparations or harsh peace terms and Eggentine felt that if the British public knew the human cost of this economic political policy they would be outraged but there wasn't much information out so she printed out that and a couple of other leaflets and a poster and started distributing them in uh, Trafalgar Square traditional site of public protest and uh, one account has her chalking up the pavements saying things like you know fight the famine and end the blockade which is a traditional suffragette tactic 
And uh, this leaflet that I found actually had in the top right-hand corner in her terrible handwriting, it said, suppressed, with an exclamation mark. And that exclamation mark, I think, really showed her personal indignation at this continued policy. And the government had her arrested. And she went... Well, she wasn't going to go quietly. I mean, she went with great dignity, but she she knew that this was a potential opportunity for her to make more Because it wasn't necessarily a high-profile arrest in the first place, was no, it? No, she it was, was taken away and she went quite quietly, but, you know, held her head up. But she insisted on conducting her own court case. And she knew that, technically, she didn't have a leg to stand on because these leaflets hadn't been cleared under the Defence of the Realm Act, DORA, which was still in place. So she focused on the moral case, giving the court reporters in the gallery at Mansion House plenty to fill their columns with. And the Crown prosecutor didn't spare her in his condemnation. I think he's the only person in this story with a name to rival Eglantine's wonderful name. He was called Sir Archibald Bodkin. And uh, he emerges from it. Slightly heroically at the end, he does. sort of poignant. He does. Yeah, he gets his conviction, which is what he wanted. But then when the court case is officially closed, but everyone's still there, including the reporters, he comes up to her and she's been fined £5, which was the minimum. She wrote to her mother, it's the equivalent of victory, because it could have been £5 for every leaflet she got rid of, which was over 800 or a custodial sentence, a prison sentence. But she's only fined £5. And then Sir Archibald comes up and he takes a £5, you know, one of those big old ones you had to unfold, takes it out and presses it into her hands, clearly saying that as far as the Crown Prosecution is concerned, she's won the moral case. And it's a fantastic press story. So they are all over the papers. And it's also the, the first donation to save the children. First donation to save the children, the, the Crown Prosecution at her court case and half a crown from her um, governess. So, yeah. What is the sort of legacy of Eglantine? Because they, you know, Save the Children goes on and on and on and on to this day. But there's also, you know, talking about the UN Declaration of the Rights yep. of the Child, which comes out of One thing I couldn't quite get straight is, is that something that sort of presages and enables the future ideas about universal human rights? Or is it something going in parallel? I mean, it seems to come first. It's part of that whole dialogue. So obviously... Children at at the time, so we're now in 1924 really, Eglantine set up Save the Children in 1919, the following year she turned it into this, uh, amazingly developed into, into this very innovative international movement, presage on the idea that children are the next generation and can help to produce international peace and stability as well as their own welfare. And five years later she's developed that idea, she's living in Geneva now, the international city, and she used to always like climbing mountains and she always took chocolate with her which she she said she should pass on as a tip to people. I've taken it to heart myself, pass that on. And there's a wonderful story of her climbing up a mountain, Mont outside Geneva, on a sunny Sunday in 1924. And she somehow gets up this sheer rock. I went out to have a look, and uh, she climbed up in her tightly laced boots and long skirts, got to the top and settled down on the crisp turf and looked down over the international city. And Lake Geneva would have been full of uh, ferries and things, full of construction materials to build what became the League of Nations building there now the United Nations of Geneva and she was struck with this idea of internationalism and the the very revolutionary concept that children are are human beings they should be party to human rights because at that point they were either property of their parents or wards of the state and she came up with a very basic it was five points that covered a lot of you know health education safe place to grow up and the last point was grown up in the right that they had to know about their responsibilities as well rights and responsibilities being flip sides of the same coin and she marched down the mountain and became appointed as one of the first female maternal and child health welfare advisors for the league of nations and got this pushed through as the declaration of geneva and that has 
directly evolved now into the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is the most universally accepted human rights instrument in history, signed by every country in the world bar Except one. Except one, yes. Which yes. was the one? You don't say. Oh, I do say. If you, it's in there somewhere. Um, well, it's America, United States of America. Good God. That was me thinking it might be North Korea, but no. And that's that usually when I give school talks, we get, well, actually, we get three or four suggestions and they come up with America, actually. It's interesting. So, yeah. Really, they know what's what. How much do you think that the, I mean, I'm, I'm inter- interested in the sort of pivot, in a way, between the two ways that children are seen. One, one of them is the case she's making, the sort of universal one, that, you know, children are innocent, that the cry of a child is an international language. She never says children are innocent. She didn't presage on that. I mean, that's one of the things sometimes you hear talked about today, and she never has this sort of sentimental maternal idea that children are innocent, and because some children are involved in crimes. Some children are, you know, perhaps unwittingly forced to become child soldiers or whatever. It's hard to describe them as innocent. That doesn't mean that their rights become negated. So, yeah, that was a key... So, Maybe innocence is the wrong word, is it? This universal idea that the cry of a child is, you know, it's language that, you know, a child in... Is a child anywhere. A child is a child anywhere, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't put that well. And how much the, do you think she... There's this sort of instru- almost instrumental idea that she's saying, actually, children are a sort of future... You know, they're the future. They're a, not in a sort of weedy Michael Jackson way, but in a... They are the future. Definitely not wrong in a Michael Jackson way. Wrong person to mention, wrong person to mention. In the I believe the children of the future sort of way. That she's saying, actually, you know, if you don't allow these German and Austrian children to grow up in, you know, a humane environment, that country... Yeah. You know, the, the sort of pragmatic argument... So whether a child is a child is important in its own right, or a child is important exactly. in its Exactly. Is it a moral or a pragmatic case she was making or was it sort well, of she actually both? made both i mean she's very smart she's got this very brilliant and original mind so she presaged her ideas on all sorts of things so that children are deserving rights as children and if they die as a children they should have still had the rights and the good life and the welfare um but to also children are the future this idea is the truth isn't it the children are the next generation and when she was thinking about it in 1919 it was part of that movement to never let a war like this be repeated and her and Keynes and various people were arguing different things around this, and hers was about future generations. And, uh, you know, I wish more people had come on side and thought along the lines she was thinking. And then also she looked at other things, like very practical considerations. She commissioned some very early research into child development, and she discovered that whereas adults, after a period of famine or starvation, can make up that lost ground, a child may be permanently set back, both physiologically, as we were talking with the rest of development, but also psychologically. So she premised her ideas on, on lots of different factors, looking from different directions. Another thing she did that seems very, very forward-looking and modern is that she started doing charity as publicity. You know, she'd take full-page ads. <laughs> she would. People resigned from the committee because it was so commercial. And of course it would make it's 20 ex- times the money because no one had done it before and it was extraordinary. I mean, she was a brilliant fundraiser. Much better than me when I was there. That kind of annoyed me. You know, 80 years on, she was better than I was. Um, but yes, yeah, she, she took full-page adverts. Um, she was the first person. Uh, they came out with the idea of child sponsorship. First person to get celebrities on side, like George Bernard Shaw. He said this thing that she used quite a lot. He said, because a lot of people didn't want to support them because they were supporting the children in Austria and Germany. And she said, I don't know about you, but I have no enemies under the age of seven. I mean, it seems pretty unarguable, really. But she also came Wasn't up- it also Shaw who sent her a postcard saying... Easier to let them all die. Yeah, he got, he got fed up in the end. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite contrary. But, you know, he sent her a postcard saying, that's enough, let them all die. And she cut out his signature and auctioned it. So <sighs> it made money for them anyhow. <laughs> I know, very smart woman. Yeah, lots of other pioneering stuff she did there. Uh, just to add a contemporary to that, what do you think she'd have made of this row between David Lammy and Stacey Dooley over white saviour syndrome in the 
get ads for comic relief, which yeah. put pitiable images of children on the thing. Yeah, I was asked this last week at a school in Bromley, and I, oh. it's so brilliant. These kids are on site. I think it, I think she'd have been really fascinated. I mean, she was never shy of a good, robust argument and discussion, and her views were always pioneering. This wasn't something that she considered. So the leaflet that she used showed a starving. Austrian baby it doesn't name her but it, it shows her and and there are the similar you know she was the first person to use film footage in cinemas and it actually there showed um, starving children she sent out the daily mail photographer with a cine camera to Russia and he filmed in Saratov and it's very upsetting footage it's not the sort of things we, we use today and when I worked at Save the Children they had really clear guidelines about the sort of imagery that could be sent out and they were really aware of these issues and I think Eggentine would have been really aware of it and stuck right into that debate. Good. Well, shame she's not here too. Claire Mully, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that book's podcast. If you did, I very much hope that you'll subscribe to us on your podcast provider. And if you liked it, especially if you liked it, please rate and review it very favourably indeed. We also have a special offer. We can provide a £20 John Lewis voucher if you subscribe to 12 issues of the magazine for just £12, so that's practically an £8 bribe to read The Wonderful Spectator for 12 weeks running. And you just need to go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.